Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for April 18th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, uh, quite excited about this show. This show marks our 15th anniversary on the air um you know there have i actually did some research last summer and there were a few podcasts that started um prior to 2007 but not a lot and i don't know that any of those have kept on and by no means are we the biggest and i wouldn't even argue we're the best but we are one of the longest running continuously uh, on the show, and in celebration of that 15th uh, anniversary, uh, we're quite excited to have one of the best guests we've had uh, in the past, and we want to really get a really good one, and I've told him as much, and joining us uh, for about the fifth time or so, uh, Matthew Dowd will be our guest here in about 20 minutes. Um, just a, a crazy thing. Tim, when I called you up a little over 15 years ago sharing this idea, um, you think we'd make it this far? Oh, gosh, no, gosh, no. As a matter of fact, do you remember how you taught me into coming on the show uh, with you and Scott the first night? I, I don't remember the specifics. I know that my vision for the show was a little different, and my vision was not as good as what people said it could become. And so I have to, uh, you know, say, look, I, mine was too limited. Other people had better ideas. Well, uh, what did well, I say, Tim? Well, it just so happens that the night before the first show, we had our Jefferson Jackson dinner up here. And you wanted me to come on the show and talk about that dinner because uh, Michael Thurman had been our speaker that night. And anyone who's ever heard him knows what a terrific public speaker Michael Thurman uh, is. And so I, I actually didn't start the show with y'all. I joined you about halfway through the show. And the, and the first shows, you know, were just 30 minutes. And we confined our topic strictly to Georgia politics, the Georgia legislature, and, and that sort of thing before we expanded. So technically, Tim, you were, may have been a guest that first show. Well... Te- technically, I guess I was. <laughs> and that's not a but, bad thing. Uh, if you know, think about all the great I, guests we've had, that's a good company to be in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, actually. Uh, but uh, that that's how it started the first night. And uh, we, we've been fortunate over the years uh, to have a lot of great guests. And, of course, we're thankful for uh, – Certainly thankful for our other co-host here, Catherine. Don't know yeah. what we'd do without someone who sits right in the middle of the 5th Congressional District. And I would also <laughs> like to uh, send my best to Bernita, who was on this show for such a long time. And we're thinking about you uh, tonight, uh, Bernita, and uh, all our prayers are with you. Yeah, most definitely. Um, hope uh, you know she pulls through the medical trouble she's had. And we're thankful you mentioned Scott Aikman, who was in the early days. Uh-huh. Bernita kind of yeah. picked up and really added a lot to our show. And then when Bernita was no longer able to be on week to week, she kind of, I believe, it, Catherine, if I'm not mistaken, she kind of passed the baton to you. Am I, did I remember that correctly? That's correct, yes. That's the way I recall it. And I don't remember how long it had been. Like, I don't remember exactly when I joined. Well, so. I, you you were here by 2008 because uh, you might recall that we actually had Bernita and a carload of people headed 
to Denver as guests. Do you remember oh, that yeah, night? Oh, yeah, yeah. So you, you, you've been here for all but about a year of, that's of, what, that's of what the, I the length of this show. Yeah. Yeah, because there was one of the conventions. Was it the Denver or the Charlotte convention? We did a show every single um, night of the convention. I know uh, my future Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed was one of our guests that week. Right. Um, I think we right. met Jane Kidd, who was state chair at the time. She was a guest that week. And Bernita kind of connected us the whole time. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's been quite a ride. And talking about topics we've talked about a lot, and that's going to segue us into some 2021 talk. I mean, early, early on, there was a state representative, uh, maybe it was a CEO of DeKalb County at that point, that um, decided to run for Senate. He came on our show at least twice, and even mm-hmm. since then, he's been in the news a lot, and we have um, frequently talked about one uh, Vernon Jones, and Vernon Jones made news this past week. Um, he has announced that he is running for the, for the Republican nomination for the Georgia governor against Brian Kemp. Um, so we're going to do a buy-sell hold on one of our, you know, Frequent topics uh, over the years, especially early on, uh, in Vernon Jones, his uh, uh, prospects. And we're going to do a two-parter. We're going to do a primary, and then we're going to assume he wins, and then do a general. Um, Even if we don't like his prospects in the primary, we're still going to go to the general just saying he hit lightning in the bottle. So, Catherine, buy, sell, hold Vernon Jones in the Republican primary in 2022. I just want to clarify something for our listeners that may not know about Vernon Jones, that he um, has been a Democrat or or served as a Democrat uh, in the state legislature. And um, so he, and and he has switched parties to the Republican party. Just, I just wanted to make that clear in case people didn't know. I'm going to say, um, I have to like I have to do this two ways. <laughs> As a Democrat, I say bye. I'd like to see that race. If I were if I were a Republican, I would say sell because I don't think he can prevail in uh, in a Republican primary. And for the general. Well, uh, well, let's do it. We'll still, one mean, at a time. You don't have to worry about the general yet. We'll okay. have two phases on this. So, okay. but but let That's me fine. kind of redirect. Now, let's just talk about. I mean, you know, not as a Democrat or Republican, just as an observer. Do you think he can win the primary? No. So sell on that. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, Tim, buy, sell, hold in the primary. I'm going to do a hold for the primary. Um, he, he needs to have a perfect storm develop for this hole to really happen. He needs to be Kemp's only challenger, I think, in the primary. And he needs to have Donald Trump's complete backing and, and all that goes with it. It would still be hard for him to beat Kemp, but um, we... We we've seen on this show that that Jones has his problems with uh, saying things off the cuff, but if he can be dis- a disciplined candidate and uh, get the blessing and total backing of Trump, who knows? Yeah, I, I, Tim, I like your caveats. I'm somewhere in between y'all. I'm not quite as whole as you are, but I, I understand what you said, and I like some aspects of it. So I'm somewhere between, um, you know, buy, I'm sorry, uh, sell and hold, and, I, and I'll kind of flesh it out, maybe land firmly land somewhere. I, I absolutely agree he has to be the only one, and he has to have Trump completely pushing against Kemp. Now, this past week, um, a lot of local county committees, Republican county committees, came out against Brian Kemp. They are still upset with him. So the not Brian Kemp Republican is going to have a nice, solid base. I have to wonder what Doug Collins is doing because it seems like 
if Doug Collins was going to run for something, he needed to kind of box some of these uh, guys out. There was a, a gentleman, Latham, and I've forgotten Latham's last name, that's run, now running for U.S. Senate. Um, you know, I don't think he would have run for Secretary of State, but, that you know, that, that lane's filled by at least two people. Now, Governor, he might have a better shot at Vernon Jones, no doubt, but Vernon Jones is there, and Vernon Jones has gotten – some version of the Trump blessing, the Trump endorsement. And so it could be a situation kind of like his uh, Senate race where, you know, he, Trump decided he liked Kelly Loeffler okay too, so if he's endorsing two people, it's not real firm for either one. So I think um, Collins has really missed an opportunity. So that leaves Jones at a better standing than he would be. Now here's some problems with Jones when the Republican um, primary voters start to talk about him. He was a Democrat. Catherine told that. He wasn't a very good Democrat. I think we'd trade him off pretty quick, uh, given that um, on our show he ta- said that not only – he everybody knew he endorsed George Bush in 2004, but he admitted on our show that he uh, voted for him in 2000. Then he um, supported Donald Trump last time. I don't remember if he had supported Donald Trump in 2016. But I bet odds are he did. So that means four out of the past um, how many of a race has he, he voted for the Republican or supported the Republican? The only time he didn't is when it was Barack Obama, and Barack Obama was the African-American candidate. And that's going to look pretty racialized to a pretty racialized white voter in the Republican primary. So that's um, kind of tricky there. Uh, and then there's the personal issues he's had, and we've talked about those in the past too, and I won't rehash all those. And I think a lot of those personal kind of issues, the Republicans aren't real strong on those like they might have used to been, particularly see how they handled Donald Trump and now Matt Gates. So he might get a pass on that. But the final one, and somebody mentioned this, I think it was Greg Bluestein this past week, is just a few years ago, one of the last times he was in the legislature, there was a um, controversial abortion bill, and Vernon Jones did not vote with the Republican pro-life position. And I would think that Brian Kemp could use that pretty effectively against Vernon Jones in the Republican primary, and that could serve to be his Achilles heel. Um, Catherine, did you see that mentioned about that bill a few years ago that came up and it was, you know, highly controversial? I don't. I, I did not see uh, Blue, Blue Steen's piece about that, and I don't remember that vote. I don't remember what which bill it was, but well, it's it's the um, one that was termed the heartbeat bill. It was that was what it's called, and you know, it was the one that they thought oh, okay. Kemp might actually veto, and he didn't. It was that controversial. Yeah, well, if he voted if, if he voted against that uh, abortion, I, I, I mean, we don't call it a heartbeat bill because it's not a heartbeat. Well, I said, I said um, so called. I mean, no, I, no, I no, I know, it. I know, I know. Yeah, I, no, I, I know. Um, uh, if he voted against that abortion ban bill, then yeah, that's going to hurt him with the you know rank and file uh, Republicans because they were very gung ho about that bill. Yeah, Tim, um, do you think that vote could be the what really, you know, creates a ceiling for Vernon Jones in the Republican primary? I don't think that bill in particular will create the ceiling. I think he'll try to explain his way out of that. I think what will create the ceiling for Vernon Jones is Vernon Jones and Vernon Jones' personality and uh, – the fact that he just can't keep his mouth shut. By the way, David, one thing you forgot to mention, uh, and and we believe it was true at the time that we hosted the first U.S. Senate debate in the history of the Internet. Is that not correct? According to the New York Times, they published that. Yeah, the, the New York Times said that was the first debate uh, on the Internet. Uh, you, in, right. In the U.S. Senate. Yep. Um, right. So, you know, it, it just um, – it's it's interesting. So let's say he somehow gets past Brian Kemp. And Brian Kemp, for an incumbent, is weakened in his party. 
Um, in some ways, you could say Brian Kemp's in a weaker position in his party than he might be the general, which is kind of crazy to think about. Uh, we got a ways to go, though. So Vernon Jones gets past him. He is the um, Republican nominee, most likely. Uh, I think if you got to place a bet on the Democratic nominee, um, Stacey Abrams would be a pretty solid place to put your money. So in a Jones-Abrams race, uh, Catherine, buy, sell, hold, Vernon Jones. Um, well, I, I'm not sure what, how, why, how am I answering? You mean, you mean, could he win against Stacey Abrams? Could he win? Not would you like that, him. Could he win? Could he defeat, could he become the governor in Georgia after the general election? I don't think he could beat Stacey Abrams. So I guess that's a sell. That's a sell. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Kim, buy, sell, hold on Vernon Jones and the general. Well, if Stacey Abrams is the opponent, I'm going to sell. I have that that much confidence in 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 her. Not it's not a lack of confidence in him, but it's just that much confidence in her. Now, if she somehow is not the nominee, then I'm going to a hold on him. So, David, I'm going to do both uh, a sell well, and a hold. <laughs> okay, I'm going to look at who's already jumped in the races so far for Democrats and who's talked about jumping in the races. And if for some reason she didn't run or someone jumped in the primary that defeated her, I'm going to assume they're of high quality. So therefore, I, I'm going to sell him regardless of who the nominee is because I'm just assuming you know, the Willie Greens of the world. Uh, wasn't that the gentleman that uh, somehow won the South Carolina Senate nomination way back right. when? I, or or the, yeah. the, the lady that won the um, state school's uh, superintendent race just last time for us. She kind of was an upset candidate. I don't think you're going to have one of those kind of candidates uh, be the nominee. I think it's going to be solid. Um, and so, therefore, I'm going to sell under any circumstances because – it's going to be interesting because I think if he were to win, and particularly if it's Stacey Abrams, think about that 10%. And it's not a majority, but that, that fraction of the Republican base, like that gentleman that was in the Ku Klux Klan that kept posing with Kelly Loeffler everywhere, or Leffler everywhere, where are those folks going to go? I mean, those folks, they may sit home, stay out and sit home, so that's not going to help Vernon Jones. Also, Vernon Jones is going to be Vernon Jones. Uh, and I think that's going to be a problem. Um, it's just going to kind of make the Republican Party look like a very disorganized bunch, which uh, a lot of times one of their strengths is you may not agree with them, but they at least look organized. They at least look like they execute their plan. And this would not be an execution of any kind of plan, having Vernon Jones be your nominee. Um, yeah. And so, therefore, I would have to sell sell him in the general. Um I would just have to think that the anti-Kemp forces come up with something better. Now, the question is would be is could they then hold Kemp under 50? Kemp is in a runoff, and could he do what Stacey – I'm sorry, what he did to Casey Cagle, and then they pass him in the um, uh, runoff? Now, that would be the trick. So let's say – let's just use Doug Collins since he's – mentioned so many times if it is doug collins vernon jones brian kemp um does that hold kemp under 50 and who gets the second slot for the runoff and then on beyond that does that uh, does that candidate then able to pass um brian kemp in the runoff uh catherine what do you think of that calculus i'm not sure i or some other candidate against Vernon Jones? Who do I? Well, it's a, it's a multiple candidate race. Can those multiple anti Kemp candidates, first, can they hold Kemp under 50%? Yes. Okay. So that's a buy, then, I guess. Yeah. And then do you think, uh, do you think Vernon Jones would be the number two candidate in that race, or would one of these other unknown anti Kemp forces? possibly get the runoff spot instead of him well i think it it it, all, it really depends on who they are i mean if it's doug collins i think like name recognition and the fact that he's white and 
uh, he has an advantage. Um, but if it's someone else who's not quite as recognizable and um, doesn't have the same kind of reputation and name recognition, then I think it gets a little dicier. Yeah. So I guess that's all. Tim, one more thing, uh, and, and well, first, your thoughts on those scenarios um, with the runoff rules in Georgia. Well, if we if we have a runoff and, and Doug Collins is in that race, I, Doug Collins is going to be in that runoff. Vernon Jones is going to be the odd man out. The only thing Vernon Jones could do in a multi-candidate race is pull enough votes to pull Kemp under 50%. And and into that runoff. Otherwise, I, I'd I'd sell him. Okay. Well, let me go ahead and switch gears here, and then we'll pick up later with uh, other things, including maybe finishing that up. But we want to welcome in uh, to the Kudzu Vine for, gosh, about the fifth time, uh, Matthew Dowd. Welcome, Mr. Dowd. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on in. Um, I think we we're saying that, you know, one of our best guests we've ever had, and it's our 15th anniversary show, so we were so delighted when you agreed to come on for us. Happy anniversary. Glad to be part of the celebration. Thank you. Oh, thank you, sir. Well, uh, the last time you were on, and every time you've been on, you were uh, a regular um, contributor to ABC News and um, this week uh, on Sunday, and since then you have kind of transitioned, uh, and you're on, I guess, multiple channels now. Tell us about, uh, you know, that transition and, and where folks can kind of catch you on the dial now. Sure. So um, I, at the end of January, I decided not to sign a new contract with ABC. I'd been with them a little over 13 years, and I thought it was time, just for a lot of reasons, time to sort of see what I wanted to do next. And um, and I was sort of done with where what I was doing there. And so uh, right now I'm just as, you know, uh, CNN and MSNBC um, and a few others have asked me to come on and talk. And so I have no contract. I'm not just, I'm just doing it as a, as a interest in keeping a conversation going on various things. So no more ABC, uh, of my own volition uh, and seeing what's ahead. And I don't know what else is going to happen, but uh, for right now, I'm just uh, moving around at different ones to, to just get my voice out there. Yes. It sounds like a little mix of play in the field and free agency, whichever analogy direction <laughs> you want to go with. <laughs> yeah. Less free, less free agency than because a free agent gets paid. So no pay, but uh just, uh, just I guess, sort of going through the neighborhood, trick-or-treating in the neighborhood. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, um, I, I want to ask you a, a variety of political questions. And one person that's been in the news um, recently, and I don't want to get deep into his personal deal, but kind of the electorate's reaction to folks like him. And uh, Matthew Gates has been in the news. But there's other folks, um, and, and unfortunately can at times be both parties, that really lack something in the personal character department, assuming the allegations are true. I mean, I'll be fair with that. Um, and yet people that agree with them politically will not um, – hold these folks to a higher standard on a personal level. Uh, where do, can we get to the point where we'll, we say, okay, we lean to the left, we lean to the right, but we know that we can handle this like a resume job process, and we want some, somebody of a certain character to go to Washington, to go to our state capitol and represent us, and we, will, we just won't accept any, just any old kind of personal behavior like Matt Gates is accused of. Well, I think it's an unfortunate development that's been coming for for a little while. Um, I, I guess I'm still old-fashioned in the idea that personal integrity and the character of a person should matter more than their party and more than their stance on certain political issues, uh, policy issues. And it's really, I think, a question now of when somebody falls into a tribe, and I think it actually – it, there's not an equal blame on both sides here, though it's happened in a few instances. But it's fundamentally, in my view, the Republicans have decided the ends justify the means in pretty much not only a personal character but public character. 
Um, they think it's, I guess they think it's okay for people to lie. I guess it's okay for people to sort of skirt uh, the law and regulations on various things. And it, it's okay for, for them to have a, a let's, let's just say at best, a complicated personal life and at worst, a corrupt personal life. And I think it's terribly unfortunate. I hope there's a movement at some point to go back to the idea that integrity matters in leaders. That I, I hope we, we end up back there. But right now, I, I'm not surprised that the Republican Party hasn't chastised Matt Gates. They didn't chastise the President of the United States, uh, the former President of the United States, on all his various personal issues and personal problems. And also his public integrity was in question. So it's an awful place we're in where integrity and character uh, no longer seem to be a defining characteristic, at least in one political party, fundamentally in one political party. And again, I know there's been instances, but really it's not the same. It's not even the same universe of what the Republicans are willing to accept in their leaders. Yes, uh, and I hope it changes because I think our uh, politics will be in a better place. Even if Matt Gates' replacement voted 99.9% of the same, uh, if he's a, a she or he is a better individual, our governor will be better for it. Um, well, let me ask you about something different, and that would be I've read in recent months that a lot of Californians are moving to Texas, you know, in big numbers. Um, some are probably just moving because just naturally they need to get a job or um, they want a lower cost of living on housing, but some may be moving for political reasons. From what you can tell about the situation, how is that going to impact Texas politics, and is it going to kind of prolong the move from Texas as a red state to a purple state? Well, no, I actually think it speeds it up, um, uh, and, and I think we're, we're an election or two away from Texas becoming a full-blown purple state, and I believe that when that happens, the politics of the nation fundamentally change. When Texas is no longer a dominant red state in the Electoral College or in statewide offices, it fundamentally changed the nature of the country when the Republicans can't count for sure on those electoral votes or on those two United States senators or on multiple levels of Congress, congressmen and congresswomen, congressmen or congresswomen. So I, though there are, there are Californians moving here because it's a lower tax state, they bring with them a much more uh, – progressive cultural approach to things. They're not as interested in a lot of the cultural issues that the Republican Party here seems to always want to take a stand on that is sort of out of the mainstream of most voters. And so I actually think that movement, along with the, just the natural growth here of the populations here, I mean, the fastest growing populations here are people of color uh, across the state. There's a movement among, in the suburban voters to become more moderate, more progressive, and so I think all of it makes Texas move towards a Texas is behind Georgia and behind Arizona, but not far in moving to be a purple state. Yes, and, and a follow-up that I didn't prompt you with, but everybody's talking about it. A poll came out showing that Matthew McConaughey um, is leading by several points. Um, incumbent uh, Governor uh, Greg Abbott. That poll may not be the best use of polling I've ever seen, but it's still very interesting. Um, what's your take on Matthew McConaughey, and could he win uh, the governorship of Texas? Well, I'm always I, I love his acting um, and some of his commercials. I guess I guess I love his acting and some of his commercials. I, I'm not a big fan of of celebrities uh, I, I, moving from from one area of, of, of America to politics. I, I actually think we want people that are incredibly serious, that are studied, that are doing it for the right reasons in the right ways. I'm not to say that he wouldn't run on issues and that, that the issues matter to him. I would be surprised, my view, and having talked to a lot of people in Texas, I would be surprised if in the end he decides to make that move because I think he knows what happens. And what would likely happen, what the Republicans would likely do in that race and how they might attack him or criticize him. But just overall, broadly, um, I would have rather have people that really fundamentally understand politics and have a real sub substantive approach to issues as opposed to 
actors or celebrities deciding because their name is well known, they're going to try to, you know, move into politics in a, in a quick high way from, you know, and we saw Donald Trump do that. And in my view, that wasn't a successful transition to where the country needed to go. Yes. Well, well, thanks for your input on that. I'm going to pass it over to Catherine and Tim, and I don't think they have any Matthew questions. Uh, I think I exhausted them all in the first part. <laughs> you got the Matthews. You got the Matthews. To, you got the Matthews to Matthew. You could ask me about the gospel, Matthew. Catherine, your questions. I promise you, I'm not going to ask you about the Gospels. I promise. Okay, perfect. It's so great to have you back on. I I really do miss you from um, ABC News because I'm a big ABC News fan. But I do catch you occasionally on other things, and it's always nice to hear your voice and uh, hear your uh, perspective, Matt. It's nice, and it's nice to have you on the show. I wanted to ask you. I have a couple questions for you, but first, how has um, covering politics changed with our new president and how um how is that how do you feel about that is it it seems much more refreshing to me but i wonder if it's uh more of a challenge less of a challenge than when you were covering our former president um well so i think it it you know donald trump sort of changed it and then it's interesting to me having watched and been part of the media watched the media I think they were slow to react to Donald Trump and dealing with him differently than previous presidents. And they kept trying to treat it like it was the same old and they'd accept things and, you know, put things out there that, that they, they should have questioned more and been more um, circumspect about. They finally turned. And the fascinating thing is, is that Joe Biden is a sort of go, go back to the more sub- substantive conversations, the more, you know, you know, and I, and I'm all politicians um, spin, but I think what you hear from the press briefings and what you hear from the president, what you hear from his officials is by and large fact-based and by and large, you can pretty much understand though it might be spinned. It's not a lie. And I think the press is now slow again. It's been slow again. They're moving it back to where it was. I think there was this idea that for some reason Donald Trump tweeted all the time and Donald Trump constantly engaged with the press. And it wasn't always helpful because you never always fundamentally knew if he was going to tell the truth or not. And he was constantly name calling. I think there was an initial, this idea of where are we going to see the president? Where are we going to see the president? If I were given the president advice, I would have done exactly what he's doing, which is be seen less, engage less, but provide people that know uh, experts and people that know more, which is what I think he's done. I don't think – I think after the last four years of Donald Trump, people were ready for, like, just don't, don't overwhelm me with your presence. Just get the job done, and I think that's how they've handled it. And so I think the press has taken a little while to get reacclimated to that way of doing things, um, but I think they're there. Um, you have some that are better than others at it and some that complain more than others at it. Uh, but I think that the more quiet, more deliberative approach is more of what the country wants. I absolutely agree with you. And I I have to say that um, Joe Biden was not my first choice um, for the presidency, but I am so glad that he's the president because I, for all those reasons, he's so, he's, he, you know, he seems to have selected a lot of very smart people and he puts them out in front and let them do their, do their work instead of, you know, trying to quiet them. And so I agree with you. And I think it's, like I said, it's quite refreshing for me. So I think that, oh, go go ahead. ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I I was going to say, one thing I was going to say that I think Joe Biden, one, I'll give you a fault the press. I'll give a bigger fault to the press on this is they still define bipartisanship in which I think is a faulty way as whether or not one party in Congress agrees with the other. I think that's a fault to put when we have such a polarized place when, when right now Republicans refuse to vote for anything or do anything in compromise with the Democrats. This is my view that the only way the Biden administration, and I think the press needs to define bipartisanship is, is there bipartisanship in the country for what the president wants to do. And I think they have decided, the Biden administration, 
that's a much better way for them politically. But I actually think it's a much more realistic way to define bipartisanship. I don't think we can no longer define bipartisanship by what's going on in Washington, D.C. Oh, I think that's a really good point. And uh, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I think that's a good point. Also, I always thought, think of bipartisanship as not one party agreeing with the other, but two parties were the two parties working together. And that seems pretty much impossible now. Like they, they just can't seem to do that. Whereas, you know, I'm old, so I remember <laughs> that, you know, in pa- in the past, that was not uncommon where, you know, you'd get um, senators and Congress people working together to come to a compromise, but we don't seem to be able to do that anymore. Well, we can't, there's we can't been an agree. The little, little that we can't even, we, we don't, there's no debate on policy because there's no agreement on a common set of facts. And if there's no agreement on a common set of facts, then you can't, you can't actually compromise, compromise if there's no agreement, even on a set of common, common set of facts. And it has to do with the election, public health, the climate, there's so many different issues. There's not even agreement on a common set of facts. Yeah. That, that, is, that is a real basic problem. There have been a lot of changes, um, both mostly bad but some good, in voting laws and legislation across the country. Um, you know, we started because of the pandemic. There were a lot of changes to make voting um, safer, um, and then, uh, and then, for instance, the Georgia legislature passed a whole, you know, list of um, more restrictive um, laws, and that combined with the um, early voting and increased mail-in voting. I wonder what you think about how the how campaigns need to change in order to capture voters earlier. You know, we've always, you know, at least as long as I can remember, it's always been a, you know, the election goes and goes and goes, and then the last, like, two weeks, everything heats up. But now, you know, we have people voting. I mean, even with these new, more restrictive laws, we're still going to have people voting as soon as, as early as three or four weeks, sometimes even longer, before the election. So how can political campaigns capture that change? Well, the first, I'm just going to say first, my view is we ought to make voting as easy as possible. And we have to, we're in a place of technology where we're still the, our voting and the way we operate voting in elections is still is decades old where we are in technology. I don't have any understanding why voting why we can't have voting be as easy as it is to make a bank transaction, which is, seems to be as secure as anything. And this election was probably the, one of the most secure elections in history with the largest turnout in history with expansive voting. So in my view, we ought to make voting as easy as possible, as easy as possible in whatever way is possible, get as many people participating. I think elections have, those campaigns have to do two things. First, they fundamentally have to quit only targeting a pool of voters that they think is this this 50% one campaign, which is, is how do I put to go together a coalition of 50% plus one? I think campaigns have to have to attempt to get 60, 65% of the vote. And by doing that, I think motivates more people. So that's one aspect. The second aspect of it, of campaigns have to decide that the, that there is a structure, not necessarily the office holder, but a structure of a, of, of a, of a campaign that stays, constantly active in communicating with voters and in ways that energize them and compel them to do things to get involved. I've always thought that the thing you can't do is wait until you get to the end and then ask somebody for a vote. You're much better off asking people to get involved six months out, nine months out, a year out, asking them to get involved and telling them that you need them, not just their vote. And so I think campaigns have to get better about that, about bringing in people earlier in different ways that doesn't have anything to do with voting knowing full well by doing that, they'll have built an organization that can deal with any change in voting laws or any adjustments in voting laws. But in the end, my view is we ought to have campaigns know that we're going to have an expansive vote as possible, that as many people can vote as easily as possible, and understanding that the whole premise 
for the voting restrictions was based on a lie. And the lie was there was, there was, there was massive fraud. Everyone knows that looks at the facts there wasn't. And so this idea of restrictions based upon expansion that resulted in voter fraud was a complete lie. And I'll, before I move, before you guys move on, I'll give you one fact, which tells the mis, the, the mis, mis, misplacement of priorities. In the last 50 years, there's been 1,500 proven instances of voter fraud, 1,500 proven instances of voter fraud out of almost 4 billion votes cast. 1,500 votes in the last 15 years, 1,500 instances. In those 50 years, 1.5 million people have died from gun violence. And what are we putting restrictions on? We're putting restrictions on voting, and we're expanding access to guns. It makes zero sense to me. Preach it. I, I'm right there with you. I, I always think that the way we should evaluate secretaries of state is how uh, how they have increased access to the ballot and how voting has uh, has expanded it during their terms instead of how they've restricted it or how they've made new rules about it. But there's a lot a lot of people who disagree with that. I mean, there's people who still think that it should be only property owners that can vote, which would be... Well, every, you know, the history of the United States is as we've expanded voting, as we've added more people, whether it was people that didn't own property, whether it was women, whether it was blacks, whether it was Latinos, um, whether it was immigrants, Irish immigrants as they came to this country, in every single instance as the country changed, there was an effort by some to restrict voting. Voter registration laws, you know when those started? Voter registration laws started when the immigrants from Italy and Germany and Ireland came over here, and voter registration laws were put in place to try to keep those groups from voting. That's why voter registration laws were originally passed. Well, hopefully we're, we're, we will, uh, we're all recognizing all these things now. Obviously, we weren't able to stop it in Georgia but there's a lot of outrage about it, and I think I don't think it's going to have much of an impact on turnout. I think it's going to increase turnout on the Democratic side. And that's my opinion. Well, that's all but I the have. Only, I'm going to pass it to. Oh, go ahead. No, the only thing I was going to say, do you think it does? And I think people will find a way to vote. I, I think making it harder for them is awful. But I think what it does, this whole effort has raised a loss of faith in our system, which is I think very damaging to, to democracy. Absolutely. We just have to fight back against it, though. I'm going to pass it off to Tim. Thank you so much, Matt. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful talking. Uh, good evening, Mr. Dowd. Thank you for being with us again tonight. Um, I saw you talking to Don Lemon the other night, and and you mentioned the danger of people losing complete faith and trust in our government's ability to solve problems. Are we already there with a significant portion of the population? Yes, we are. I mean, and, I, and, and we're already there. I actually think I talked about this a couple of years ago or actually even before Donald Trump that I think Donald Trump was the result of a broken system, a system that mm-hmm. was, bro- was broken, not, not a cause of it, though he was a proximate cause of a lot of problems. One of the reasons why he was successful is basically people believed that the system was broken and was corrupt. And so why not put in place somebody that was, that was corrupt or somebody that they didn't have to trust who was on their side that could go fight the system. But when we look at what's going on is a, the supermajority of the country wants an increase in the minimum wage. A supermajority of the country wants more access to voting. A supermajority of the country wants gun, common sense gun reform. And I say that as an owner of five, five rifles. All of those things, a, a, a supermajority of the country wants action on climate change. None of that's happening. None of that's happening. And so when you have a system where a supermajority of the country wants something that's not happening, the system's broken. Mm-hmm. Well, how can there be any realistic way that the two parties can move forward united on any major policy 
policy initiatives when they disagree on practically every major issue out there? I don't actually, I mean, I, I, and this is not, I'm hopeful in the long term. I am very pessimistic in the short term on just that uh-huh. issue. I don't think there will be. I don't think there's going to be any Washington-based bipartisanship, Washington-based, not country-based, but Washington-based bipartisanship until something falls apart. Some of the, one of the parties falls apart. There's a huge cleavage. We go through a system where something else emerges over time. The country's diversity is changing. But in the short term, I don't think there's any chance that there's – because of the, the Republicans aren't doing what they're doing because somebody in Washington told them to do it. They're doing what they're doing because the base of their party, which represents their primary voters, doesn't want them to cooperate at all, not at yeah. all. And so until that breaks, until that fundamentally breaks, I think in the short term, I don't see anything in Washington, D.C. that brings the two, two parties together. We couldn't even get the two parties together in the midst of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how we're going to do it until the country – the the movement of the country, the change in the country, and then one party cleaves, and then when that comes and the new party arises and there may be a splinter party like has happened before, that that until we get to that point is I don't think we're going to have any sort of cooperation in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, speaking of, of an area like that, I, I live – with Lookout Mountain as my neighbor across the street here in the middle of the 14th Congressional District in Georgia. And my congresswoman is someone you might have heard of, Marjorie Taylor Greene. So wow. i, I got to ask about her. What is her game? Is she a first-term member trying to make a name for herself, or is she a true believer in the lunacy that she's espousing? Well, in my, my uh, perspective on her is I think she believes it. And I think the problem isn't fundamentally her. We've had, we've had nuts and people that were outrageous run before, but there was mm-hmm. guardrails in the system to either keep them from ever getting nominated or there was a system in place that if they got nominated, they'd lose in the general election. But because of where we are in the two parties, I think she represents the Republican Party today and who the Republican Party is much more than Liz Cheney does. I think if Liz Cheney and her ran in, against each other in that district in Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene would win overwhelmingly in that district. And with her stand on issues, I think she believes what she says. Of course, it's totally based on myth and fiction and craziness, but I think she believes it. Um, and I don't think she's just doing it for like entertainment value. I think she represents a constituency of the Republican Party that has grown very large. And I think that that is the move. I don't, as I have always said, Donald Trump and where he was, wasn't a cause. He was a result of a movement in the Republican Party and where they are and how they get information. A biggest part of the problem today is how they get information. And they're getting information from sources that no one else of a sound mind would trust, but they believe it. And so um, I think she represents a huge part of the Republican base these days. Oh, that's really sad to hear. I, I go back in politics to the late 60s. I, I know you've had a, a long run in politics. You've seen a lot. Are we going to see the Republican Party that we used to know? Because I miss that party. It was It was a great party, even though I disagreed with it on a lot of policy. Still, I miss the strong two-party system. Are, are we going to have that again? Um, no. That part of the, that sort of the party of Eisenhower, Nixon, Reagan, the Bushes, that is a, the mm. Bob Dole, that's gone. Um, that is not returning. Um, and so the question is, is sort of the element of the Republican Party that would still be the sort of business establishment, uh, the people that are sort of principled conservatives, they're going to have to find a place um, in America. And uh, I don't think that the Republican Party, as we knew it before, and I've been involved in politics since the late 70s, um, mm-hmm. I think that party is that party is long gone. I, I think Ronald Reagan, if he stood up at one of those CPAC meetings to speak, 
he'd get booed. Mm. Well, see, a final question then. There's a lot of folks out there like you who, you know, who I would call rock rib conservative uh, establishment Republicans. What, what, where do you guys go? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I'm I, so where I've gone is I'm an independent today. So, um, mm-hmm. and I've been one for a few years. And so, yeah. um, I right now I have no, I have no party. Um, I, 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 I vote by based on the person I've chosen based on integrity, based on principles, uh, based on I think where the country, most of the country is. I think I am representative of most of the country. Um, that is conservative on some things, progressive on other things, trying to be thoughtful about it. But we have no home mm-hmm. today. We we have no home today. Yeah. Well, I want to say something to you going going out. Um, uh, this old New Deal liberal will be glad to man the ramparts with guys like you anytime <laughs> because you've been a credit <laughs> to politics, my friend. And with that, I'm going to send it over to David. <sighs> Thank you. I really appreciate that. Very kind. Yes. Well, Matthew, we thank you for coming on the show uh, once again and gracing us with your presence. We talked about on television where we can find you, and we may even see you more places. But if people want to read you on the Internet, um, you can give your Twitter handle or anything else that might be a place where folks can find you. Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, always great having a conversation with y'all. Um, they can get me, they can look at on Twitter at, and it's at Matthew J. Dowd, Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-J-D-O-W-D. That's uh, my Twitter handle. Yes. Well, that's good. And I know we follow you and you follow us. So we, we kind of correspond at times like that. So uh, good to have it out there. And, and I think I've caught you on both places you mentioned, MSNBC and CNN since you switched over, and it sounds like there may be more uh, spots around the dial soon. Uh, yeah, I hope so, and I'm looking forward to the next chapter of my life, see where it brings me. Yes, well, good luck in all of that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you all do in, in opening people's mind and having conversations with all, lots of folks. Yes. Thank you, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, uh, Matthew Dowd, a political consultant extraordinaire, a contributor on now multiple uh, cable news sources. Um, now let's go ahead. We've got a few more minutes, and something we've been trying to talk about uh, for a few weeks now, we just don't get to it, um, but let's take the time tonight, is the approval rating polls on Joe Biden. Now not all of them are this good, but I've seen at least three that has his approval rating up as high as 60-61%. His disapproval rating in the low 30s, I think maybe the, uh, as low as like 33%. Um, really astounding numbers. I mean, we are in a very, very polarized environment in which, you know, as Matthew Dowd said, people are very tribal. Um, and, and so these numbers really surprised me. I, I, I mean, I think Joe Biden's just doing a solid yeoman's job, but it's not like he's doing a lot of flashy things. Um, but he seems to be getting credit, not only from the base, but a good chunk of independence. And even some Republicans seem to be giving him the benefit of the doubt at this point in these polls that are 61-33. Now, some of the other ones are a little different. Um Catherine, how surprised are you by how strong uh, some of the approval rating polling on Joe Biden's been? I'm not surprised. Um, I think uh, Matthew, our guest, made a you know a good point that I think people were they didn't know it. I think a lot of people were and were hoping for a president that really got down to work and you know was was pr- productive and effective and especially with the pandemic i think he's shown that he can do that so i think people were are um pleased with the fact that he's staying quiet and has a lot of smart people um doing the work and you know getting the work done instead of 
spending a lot of time uh, talking about things. So I think I'm not surprised at all. Yes. Tim, your thoughts on, um, you know, some of these approval ratings thus far? Some of them really look good. There's there's um, a few outliers that have, you know, dragged his overall average down a little bit. But according to 538.com, his, the, the president's approval is very stable, certainly no, no movement downward. Um, at this time, he is like 11 and a half points above where Donald Trump was in 2017 at this time. His, you know what helps him, guys? His major initiatives are popular. Uh, the on the COVID relief law has a 63% approval rating. Uh, the infrastructure plan uh, is it's got a 50% approval rating with a disapproval in the 30s. Uh, his idea for raising taxes on the rich to help pay for this has like a 65% approval rating and a 32% disapproval. Another thing that's happening, because we are, dare I say, in a normal presidency again, there's more optimism in the country. At the beginning of the Biden presidency, uh, 34% of the population was more optimistic about the country and 61% was pessimistic. Those numbers have now gone to 46 50, an almost 50-50 split on the direction of the country. When is the last time we've been that optimistic? It's been a while. I think the president's uh, popularity is being driven by the uh, popularity of, of, of what he's been doing. What do you think? Well, and it's, I think you are going to add on to the fact that we are doing better on COVID as far as where people are getting vaccinated to where people have options to get out there and reenter society. That's going to buoy the economy over time, so he's going to get an economic mm-hmm. boost. Because I saw something like, really, worldwide, there uh, COVID, people saved, and these are people with means, obviously, you know, millions of people worldwide suffered both medically and financially, and it really, really hurt those people, and you can't gloss that over. But there were other people that either already had their wealth built or they were fortunate enough to keep their paychecks and their economic stability, and they saved a lot of money. I mean, in the billions of dollars, and a lot of that was in America because America is a wealthy nation compared to many other parts of the world. So all these people that have been saving their money, not traveling, not you know, uh, going out to eat and, and things like this, they're going to take that money that they've saved and they're going to you know, let it loose on the economy. So the economy may get, you know, really ramp quickly, and then we'll talk about it overheating and this, that, and the other. But when you just comes right down to it, people getting out, being able to do things they hadn't, the economy being good, that's going to help uh, the Biden administration's numbers as well. Um, Catherine, mm-hmm. what do you think on the economic and, and just social piece of being able to get back out there uh, at some point this summer, either sooner or later? Um, well, I think there's <clears> – I think that will increase his um, um, approval because finally people will be able to get out and do things and travel and, I mean, even just, you know, freely go to the grocery store would be nice. Um, so I think that's great, and I think it's, you know – not only is it good for his approvals, but it's good for us um, as a people. So I, I think all these things, uh, I mean, overall, everything's uh, improved with our new president, and I don't think any of us are surprised by that. <laughs> yeah. Tim, uh, your, your thoughts on the economic piece? Well, I just saw a story today that said that the number of people filing first-time unemployment is dropping precipitously now. Um, 
and a lot of uh, experts seem to think we're on the very edge of an economic boom in this country as things start to open back up and the people that you talked about that were saving and stuff, they're going to have money to spend. They're, they're going to want to get out there to do it. And, you know, consumer spending is what really, really, really drives the economy. This can only help the president. And then we have to start wondering if his approval rating increases. What does that do for our prospects in the midterms? Could we buck history and perhaps uh, do a lot better than we are expected to do? Yeah, who knows? And it sounds like we're going to be in the same districts. Um, so maybe we, um, you know, the the profile looks pretty much like it is now. We win some back, uh, just a handful here and there, because unfortunately, both ways. I mean, the, the districts are so gerrymandered one way or the other that a district is pretty much decided uh, before any voters um, cast their ballots because the, the representatives chose the, the voters, not the other way around, um, so to speak. So we shall see. Well, exciting um, 15th anniversary show. Again, thankful for Matthew Dowd for coming in. And we are going to start year 16 off right. Uh, we're having another top-shelf guest uh, come on in, and uh, Bill Snyder, who was just the dean of politics on CNN and inside politics, which was just the gold standard of political analysis for so many years. He's going to come on for, I believe, the third or fourth time on our show, and that's how we're going to start off week, or, or sorry, year 16 next week. But until then, for the Kazuvan. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united 